Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Uh, this episode is brought to you by our friends over at B-Dratty. Today, I, uh, I actually played a golf tournament and I wore a new uh, B-Dratty sport. So they just came out with this. They did a limited release this fall and uh, in a few pro shops. And it's really awesome. It's got that tech fabric and... To go along with their classic cotton, they now have this tech fabric. Uh, great, great shirt. I really liked it. Uh, kept me cool under pressure, even though my game put me under pressure a lot. Uh, it was not a good, good round of golf today. But anyways, the shirt was great. If, if, if I played as well as my shirt did, <laughs> would have been uh, playing the U.S. Uh, four ball next spring. So... We, uh, those will be in the pro shop hopefully next year, right? Uh, January one, but you can get them at a few participating clubs. A lot of them on the East coast. Um, if you're in one of those pro shops, they might have be dratty sport. Uh, also with new, uh, happenings in the pro shop, we have a, uh, 25% off code in the, uh, pro shop. So use the code fall 25 and you'll get 25% off uh, T-shirts, uh, the B-Dratty T-shirts, and then also our Width and Angles T-shirts. So uh, we got a new podcast, uh, and actually Garrett Morrison, our managing editor, is the host of this. So this will be with uh, Bob Crosby. And uh, Garrett, you there? Yep, right here. So this is exciting. Yeah. yeah so. We're going we're gonna to have Garrett come in. He's going to do some hosting. I'm going to do some hosting. But, uh, you know, Garrett's probably a better host than I am anyways. I, I doubt that. Um, but I'm, I'm getting my seed legs, and, and it's been really fun. And uh, the conversation with, with Bob was great. Yeah, he's, he, that was a great I, – I listened to it. And what, a, what an intelligent guy. I know. Seriously intelligent. So my, my idea is that, you know, when, when I'm tracking down guests and asking people to talk with me, I'm going to make sure that they're uh, smarter than me, which, which won't be too difficult, but Bob is definitely smarter than me. And so it was really, really fun to talk to him. Yeah. I, uh, I think that all of our guests are smarter than I am. I think so it's a, <laughs> it's a low bar. So uh, awesome. Well, we'll hope you guys enjoy Bob Crosby and uh garrett as a host and so we'll just you know it'll be noted in the notes who's hosting but should be should be if anything better than when i'm hosting and i should mention that my guest bob crosby who goes by robert crosby in publication is a great golf historian and if you're interested in the content of this podcast uh, you should check out his two essays on john lowe for the journal through the green which we'll link to in the show notes. You can also follow him on Twitter at OTE71. That's O-T-E-Y-7-1. All right. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Bob Crosby. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. 
how did you initially get into golf? Were you a, a player when you were younger? Did you did you play on teams uh, yeah. and things like that? I, I was uh, yeah, I was a fairly serious junior golfer. Um, captain, I went to Culver Military Academy, played in a wonderful Langford Moreau course at Culver. Um, won some high school tournaments, played golf for Harvard College for a couple of years, and then the student demonstrations created enough cognitive dissonance with that activity that I gave it up essentially for 20 years um, uh, and got back to it sometime in my mid-late 30s um, and found I loved it more than ever. I, certainly without playing for tournaments and trying to qualify for travel squads and that sort of stuff, it was a lot more fun. So I've been a golfer since I was seven or eight years old. So tell me more about when you were at Harvard and there were the student demonstrations and it sounds like it led you to question your involvement in the game. I'll give you an, a very concrete example. We, our two home courses, I didn't appreciate how good they were at the time, was the Myopia Hunt Club and, and the Country Club in Brookline. I was sitting at Brookline with, I had long hair, I had a bandana, I had a black armband of anti-Vietnam stuff. And there was a student demonstration going on back at campus. And I thought to myself, I, I'm in the wrong place. And uh, all that was much more pressing. I walk, I, I, I caught a ride home that afternoon, left my golf clubs at the country club and never went back to fetch them. As far as I know, nearly 50 years later, they're still there. Um, no, they, they, that's probably not possible. But that's that's how abrupt it all happened. And then I kind of got swept up in events at the time. So, Is there something about golf that just keeps itself separate from the world at large? Do you think that, that cognitive dissonance, as you call it, between golf and current events or politics is is a natural thing that's always going to be there you know garrett for me it really did i when i walk onto a golf course i really walk into a different mental universe at least for me um and that's which is one of the reasons i love it so much um uh, i'm a recently retired lawyer and uh, I, there were just so many times when i walked out you know got out of the car and it was, it was just a different universe at the golf course as i was walking onto the practice to you or wherever yes the answer is yes it, it's and it's strikingly so for me right and, and that can be either a good thing or a bad thing it can be an escape as you're talking about or it can be a kind of realm of denial you know i, I know too much about this so i don't know how much time you have but bernard darwin wrote an, a piece in 1914 called the fascination of golf and it was about the power of golf to, in some cases, simply take over somebody's life. He worked less hard. He spent less time in the office. His wife was mad at him all the time, but he was at his fascination was such, and it was so different from the rest of his life that he, that he, you know, spent way too much time in the game. But Darwin thought that was actually probably a good thing. He published that in the Times. I wrote a piece on this for Through the Green. He published that in the Times in, I think it was April of 1914. 
for the next two months, there were 65 or 70 counter letters and articles outraged at Bernard Darwin's view of the importance and fascination of golf, how it was a bad thing for society, how it corrupted young men, how it was uh, not a good thing in the long term. Um, it was unbelievable dispute. The, 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 the ending irony of all of that <clears throat> is that Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in August 2nd or 3rd. They launched, you know, World War I is kicked off. And all of those young, dissolute golfers marched dutifully off to war. Uh, so it hadn't been that harmful. But uh, it didn't the, the whole topic is, the, the topic really goes back, and you'll appreciate this, it goes back to theories of education. Should young boys be taught golf? Now, everybody agreed that teaching them cricket was a good thing because it was a rough team sport or soccer was a rough team sport. But golf was his individual, quote, selfish sport. And, and there, was, there were a lot of people that said it was a bad influence on boys. So, but that's another topic. So how did you become serious about researching golf history? Or, or maybe the better question is, at what point did you become interested in the game beyond just playing it? I had always be, been interested in golf architecture primarily because I kept scratching my head over what I thought were odd bunkers and odd things on the golf course I grew up on, which is in Athens, Georgia. Um, and it, 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 there, there's a, this oddly placed bunker on the first hole of Athens, Athens Country Club, but I never quite understood why it was there. And then I got to thinking, well, you know, everything that's on that golf course is there for a reason. Somebody decided to put it there or not put something there. And that led to just a whole bunch of sort of meditations on my own. It wasn't until, frankly, Golf Club Atlas and some of those old blogs that cranked up in the late 90s that I realized that other people wondered about the same things. And it was an enormous relief. <laughs> I thought I was sort of crazy. Um, and out of those blogs, I've made some of the best friends I have. Um, we share an interest in uh, golf architecture. And uh, it's been wonderful. The Internet has made uh, has, has richly enhanced my life for that reason. What was the role of Golf Club Atlas specifically in your exploration of the history of the game? There, there were a number of really serious architectural historians and I was absolutely fascinated by their research um, a couple of them are dead now um, they led to some very very bitter fights which were unfortunate um, but the research and the I came to see let me back up a minute I came to see golf courses as objects of art that had a history that reflected various ideas about how golf ought to be played. And I thought that whole nexus was absolutely fascinating, the history part in particular. The other part of that is that I, I came to see, and this is really a telltale for golf history in a lot of ways. That I, I can get into this later if you want. I, came, I began to read Alistair McKenzie, Max Baer, you know, the usual suspects. And I realized at some point, they weren't really writing descriptively. They were writing arguments. They were being, they were being polemical. 
And as I dug more into it, I kept the question kept, kept coming up, well, who are they arguing with? And that led to uh, a lot of discoveries about sort of other theories of golf architecture that they were trying to beat back in one way or another. And those other theories had to some extent been lost to history, not lost, but they were just lightly buried and nobody had bothered to dig back into them. The, the first long thing I wrote on golf architecture was a four-part essay in Golf Club Atlas on the Joshua Crane, Alistair McKenzie, Max Baird debates. Literally nobody knew anything about Joshua Crane, but that's who they were writing against. They hated him. And then I further came to find out that really the, one of the reasons they disliked him so intensely, first of all, he was a jerk, but very wealthy Bostonian. But the real reason they came to dislike him so intensely was because he really reflected a lot of older Victorian golf architecture ideas, and he'd carried them forward into the 1920s. And then that led me to John Lowe, <laughs> who, had the, who fought the same battles with a different cast of characters circa 1900 through 1905. Um, and I came to think that Lowe was both a better writer, a better thinker, and had more worthy opponents to argue against than Mackenzie, Bear, and Joshua Crane were. And plus it predated them all by almost two decades. And so I dug into it. I dug into it. And that's really how I got to love. I have a problem with most golf histories. I'm on the Herbert Warren Win Golf Book Award Committee at the USGA. Been on it for five or six years. I read a lot of golf books, some of them really, really bad. Some of them very good. Um, but very, very few of them see golf history as other than a series of more or less isolated events. You know, um, I don't know. Harry Colt did Swinley Forest on this date, and he did this to the. He built. He built these sorts of holes. Um, the stymie was uh, was eliminated from the code book in this year. Uh, you know, Jage Taylor wins the Open in 1905. I don't find that very interesting. I mean, I'm I'm happy to be informed. I can sort of show off at a cocktail party, but it's just it's not terribly interesting. There. there I, what I did come to discover, and I think I'm right about this, is that there are long-term storylines in the history of golf, and nobody embodies what I took to be the most important of those storylines better than John Lowe. Not just in his own time, but continuing today. And um, that the, the storyline that... I'm trying to articulate that basically encompassed Joe, uh, Lowe's career in the game began about 1895 where the game, the game was very, very different from the game we know today. There were a, the rules were basically driven by various clubs. They set their own rules. Uh, golf courses were tended to be very Victorian with these cross bunkers and steeplechase things other than the traditional links courses. But anything that anything that was inland tended to be these horrendous Victorian golf courses. 
And there were literally no rules about balls. You could use anything you wanted, anything you wanted. Um, what Lowe as a Scot faced, and Lowe grew up in Dundee, went to Repton uh, Public School, graduated from Cambridge, Clare College at Cambridge in 1891 or 92. What was happening in golf at the time was that it had exploded in England. England had new golf courses were popping up daily in England, new clubs. England had more money. They had more political clout. They had, uh, they, they published all the golf magazines. In other words, they had all the power and they brought to golf these Victorian preconceptions about how golf and any sport ought to operate. And that basically was highly moralistic. Lowe described the, the, them as the party of equity and he described his, traditional Scottish take on things as the conservative party. Um, so one of the long running themes that begins with rules debates in 1895 between Lowe and others and Englishmen like Laidlaw Purvis, although technically he grew up, he was born in Scotland, but he's been all his life in England, and other uh, people based in the London area was the extent to which the rules ought to be answerable to concerns of equity or fairness. Lowe, the traditional Scott, along with Walter Simpson and others, said, it's got no, it doesn't matter, that's got nothing to do with the rules. The rules are the rules. Some are fair, some aren't fair. It's part of what makes golf so interesting. And there has no duty to some higher moral concept. Um, at the same time, everybody was promulgating theories of Victorian golf courses, which really turned on similar issues. That is to say, hazards ought to be laid out on a golf course, which were fair and proportionate based on the quality of the shot. Good shot should be rewarded. Any bad shot should be punished. Worse shot should be punished more heavily. It was this neat Victorian moralistic universe of how a golf course ought to operate. And Lowe said, no. No, uh, the old the, the old course at St. Andrews uh, and other great lengths courses don't operate on those principles. They operate on what we now call, he didn't call at the time, strategic golf architecture principles, which is to say, I'm going to give you choices to the extent you want to take on risks for easier shots later on in the hole, you can do that. But if you don't successfully pull them off, you're going to be in deep trouble and bad golfers, let's leave them alone, more or less. They're their own worst enemies. So there was this deep rupture in golf. Well, it was really a fight between two camps, the, the conservative party and the party of equity, which were roughly divided along geographic lines, Scotland versus England. Um, and I, I would argue that out of that, the basics of modern golf emerge, the golf we are familiar with today. And I, what I mean by that is that a rules, a, a, a code book that is basically rooted in older St. Andrews codes, there's been lots of tweaks to it since, but it's basically the St. Andrews code was, was, was established with the formation of the RNA Rules Committee in 1897, on which Lowe served as a very young man. Um, at the same time, the architectural principles that were found in Lynx courses uh, and for which Lowe was the first to argue for, and I think the first really to discover, 
came to very quickly dominate golf course architecture through Harry Cole, Allison, Simpson, and a whole bunch of others. Um, so that the rules we play under today, the basic rules we play under today, the basic kinds of golf courses we play on, and the kinds of balls and equipment we play with, all can be dated back to the early Edwardian era. And in the middle of every one of those issues was my man, John Langlow, uh, either as a member of the rules committee, either as an incredible, or incredibly articulate exponent for a wholly different kind of golf architecture or in his fight to regulate the Haskell ball and later clubs. That's fascinating. So that gives so, us kind of the general outline of it. Could you tell me a little bit about who John Lowe was? You mentioned a bit earlier about where, where he was from, but, you know, who was he outside of golf? What was his you know, general social status? Uh, what kind of person was he in the world? John Lowe was born north of Dundee, and he was born to a manorial estate. His father owned a lot of land in a area called Dunkeld, the Dunkeld Castle or, or Mansion House, I'm not sure what it's called. It's still there, and I would love to go there and visit one day. Lowe is buried there on the premises there. Um, he married into a very wealthy Dundee family, the Langs. His middle name is Lang. Um, uh, I'm sorry, his, his mother was a Lang, and they were a very wealthy Dundee family. Um, he spent a lot of time in his childhood in Dundee. They were major jute manufacturers, which is which would, in the time was the major component for ropes. Um, wasn't smoked, I don't think. Um, Lowe grew up playing a lot of golf at the old course with his mother's brothers, the Langs. Um, Tragically, his father died as he was going off to college. His older brother died at about the same time. And Lowe was charged with taking over the family business when he was still 19 or 20 years old. Um, he was, so he was late getting to Cambridge. He took a year off, did some traveling in Europe, but was late getting to He and Harry Colt, by the way, are exactly the same age and were classmates at Cambridge and very close friends. Uh, but at any rate, Lowe then sells the company, made a, I'm not clear how much money he cleared in the sale, but he was very wealthy and never had to work a day in his life. Uh, before he graduated from Cambridge, he was, became a member of the RNA, ditto for Harry Colt, his, his classmate. He captained the Cambridge golf team um, and then uh, moved uh, his principal residence became Woking on the Woking golf course in, you know, in Surrey outside of London about 1900. And that's where he spent between St. Andrews and Woking is where he spent most of his time thereafter. Um, close friends with uh, Bernard Darwin, who was also a member at Woking and who also went to Cambridge. Uh, he founded the Oxford, helped found the Oxford Cambridge Golfing Society in which Everybody that was anybody in golf architecture was a member because they all went to college at Cambridge or Oxford. Um, was on the rules committee from nineteen from eighteen ninety seven until just before he died in nineteen twenty nine. Was chairman of the rules committee for eight of those eight critical years in the middle of that span. Um, 
died though he was only 60 when he died he died what i think was from throat cancer um he was still not he had not turned his 60th birthday had not he'd not gotten to his 60th birthday yet um there was an outpouring he was really beloved outpouring of obits including a very long loving one from bernard darwin um a major figure in the game who has been largely forgotten right now, did he first really rise to prominence in the world of golf during the rules debates of the mid-1890s? Or was he a, a kind of well-known figure in the game before that? he That's a great question. He, as an undergraduate at Cambridge, he weighs into what was a really, really nasty rules debate between the English and the Scots about the role of equity in the rules in 1891, which is incredible. I mean, this is a 19 year old weighing in with these guys who were 40 and 50 years old, didn't flinch. He, he was a very fine golfer. Um, so uh, he had a reputation for both being a good writer and a fine golfer. He really, he got more deeply involved in that same debate on the eve of the formation of the rules committee. Um, I'm, I'm telling you more than you want to know, but but the, 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 the RNA, formed the rules committee reluctantly and they formed it reluctantly because it was essentially a defensive move against late law purpose and other Brit, other English golfers who wanted to form their own democratic golf union, which would have represent, you know, fair representation from all golf clubs in Britain and would make more democratic decisions about the rules. And they, he was pushing hard for that. And, uh, members of the RNA, uh, Benjamin Hall Blythe, John Lowe, and others brought the RNA around to the idea that, you know, you really have to organize a rules administration. You have to form a committee or else they're going to take over the rules from you. It was a real threat that was going to happen. It was an existential issue for the RNA. Lowe was in the middle of that. Appointed to the first committee, along with his buddy, uh, Harry Colt, Horace Hutchinson, and other people you've known, you know. And they promulgated the first rule, first uniform rules in golf uh, that were uh, basically went effective essentially the beginning of 1900. Um, and it was a big moment for the game. It sounds like Lowe's general position on the rules. Now, this will become relevant when we start talking about his opinions on golf course architecture. But when he was dealing with the rules, it sounds like he was against the notion that everything needed to be fair. Could you say a little bit more about that? And, and how did that get borne out in the the kinds of rules that he endorsed or, or the types of things that he argued against or argued for? I'll give you two concrete examples. He, he, was, he was adamantly opposed to using the fairness. We can, we can talk about the old philosopher and he's happy to talk about what that means in this context. But he was adamantly opposed to using fairness as a as a criterion for the for the for a rule. A rule was a rule. He said, "This we're not we're not creating a a, a penal code here. This is a, these are rules for a golf. These rules for a sport. And fairness really has no play, or should have no play, other than you know we can talk about in, in limited situations. Let me give you two concrete examples of his views." There were all sorts of arguments that the stymie was unfair. Lowe said it doesn't matter. What matters is that it increases the drama of the game. 
And absent the stymie, you're going to mark your ball and you're going to putt around. And that, yeah. But the stymie adds a, a, a degree of drama that is what makes golf special. He had similar arguments about, and we've, everybody's forgotten this rule existed. There used to be a rule called the lost ball rule, which applied in match play. The rule stated that as soon as a player had lost his ball or his ball was out of play and he couldn't use the same ball, his opponent had automatically won the hole without regard to what the opponent did afterwards. Automatic. You're out. Lowe defended the rule. It was very acrimonious. Uh, Opposing him were literally all the professional players, Harold Hilton, everybody. Uh, Lowe defended defended it on similar grounds. If you're playing golf and you know what the rule is, then you play accordingly. And if you lose your ball in a match, there might be catastrophic consequences. Take that into account. And it makes for a better game. It might be whether it's fair or not. You know what? I don't care. I don't know whether it's, it's not relevant to the, to whether or not this rule is a good rule. It so sounds, that was sort of just... Sorry, it, it, it sounds like his priority was the, the drama and interest of the game as opposed to its fairness. And when those right. two, drama versus fairness, came up against each other and you had to choose one or the other, he sided with drama. Is that he, fairly accurate? Yes. He wanted golf to be, first of all, a sport for gentlemen and not a sport that was an adventure and heroic and less about athletic prowess. I want you to, I want you to, it needs to test perseverance, judgment, intelligence, as much as your, your physical ability to strike a golf ball. Now this, there's similar veins of arguments that come out literally just two years later when he first broaches the idea of strategic golf architecture. And there's very similar issues appear in the arguments over that. And his, you know, his famous saying that there, there is no such thing as an unfair bunker um, was part of that argument. You know it's there. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> and now for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Whether on the course or in the market, it helps to have a second set of eyes to keep you on your game. That's why TD Ameritrade's trade desk is here to help gut check your strategies so you always feel confident teeing up a trade. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg to learn more about what their trade desk can do for you. Member SIPC. All right. And now back to my conversation with Bob Crosby. Yeah, that's part of what I was leading into because it strikes me that his approach to the rules debate is so consonant with his approach to to golf architecture so how, how did john lowe end up getting involved in golf architecture you mentioned earlier that he that he took up a residence near near woking golf club um how did it come about that he got involved in the uh, uh in in fiddling with that golf course i'll get i'll get to woking in a second but I'll, the, 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 he, he he first established a reputation of golf architecture 
1901 in Golf Illustrated that ran a survey on the best holes in Britain. And they wanted everybody to pick a par five, a par four, and a par three, and give reasons for your picks. Lowe ended up in the, in the context of that survey, writing a three-page essay on the merits of strategic golf architecture, something that had literally never been seen before. And it, what he was writing against, and this gets back to the polemical side of things, exactly what are they argue, who are they arguing against? What he was arguing against was Victorian golf architecture. And in 1901, Victorian golf architecture, it was not just a crude form of golf course construction. It was to the contrary, a very sophisticated theory of how, how hazards on a golf course ought to be laid out. And Lowe was arguing against that. And it was, it's a remarkable piece of work. Um, it starts a huge flurry of arguments back and forth with J.H. Taylor, with Harold Hilton. Lots of, li lots of lifelong enemies were established based on that essay. He goes on from that essay with his friend Stuart Payton at Woking to take out on the famous fourth hole what had been a classic Victorian cross hazard that stretched all the way across the fairway and reduced it down to a simple circular central line bunker as on the 16th hole of the old course. Um, and then reconfigured the green to make it such that if you wanted to come into the green from the right side, which was the easier side, I'm gonna force you to hit a drive down the narrow neck on the right of that center line bunker, which by the way, slightly farther right has a railroad track um, and if you can do that, I'm going to let you have an easier shot into the green. Um, that was enormously co uh, controversial at the time. This is probably 1901, 1902. Nobody knows quite exactly when he made that change. But the other big change, and this is fascinating because we take some of these features on a golf course today for granted, but at the time they were revolutionary. On the 17th hole, Lowe dug a bunker into the green right at the green, which we now see on every golf course you and I've ever played. It was hugely controversial on the, on the argument that, well, but you know, a, a, a decent shot is going to catch that bunker, but a worse shot is going to be okay, way far off the green. Um, but it was this bunker that quote, ate into the green that caused enormous controversy. It was that bunker, and I write about this in, in, a, in a Through the Green essay, that Tom Simpson as still a young lawyer just out of school went out and looked at because of all the controversy. And it struck him that golf architecture was dealing with a fascinating set of issues. And he decided on the spot to become a golf architect, dropped his legal career. Um, but, it's, it's, and, 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 and Lowe was always a hero to Simpson. Right. It's, it's striking to think how different those bunkers were in the early 1900s, you know, uh, and, and they're, they're pretty commonplace ideas to us now. Okay. A center line bunker and a, a bunker really near where a pin could be on a green. Right. But of course, what was unusual about these kinds of hazards at the time is that people assumed, most people assumed that the purpose of hazards was to punish poor strikes of the ball. But right. Lowe was doing something very different. You know, he was doing, again, something that was opposed to the kind of commonsensical 
fairness school of golf and going a different direction with it, making the game more interesting. What, what, what was the purpose of these hazards? Why was he putting them there? What kind of drama and interest did they introduce to the game? Lowe Low put it very succinctly, and his phrase has been copied for, by thousands of people since, which is that I have no real interest in punishing the bad golfer. What I want to do is catch the not quite good enough shot of the good golfer. And in other words, anybody that wants to play ambitiously but can't quite pull it off, he's the guy I want to punish. And that's, that's how hazards ought to be arranged on a golf hole. That's, that's the point, the function of he, – he rewrote the function of hazards in his essay in 1901. It's, it's a re remarkable – I don't know if intellectual is the right word for it, but it was a remarkable tour de force to have thought that through so carefully. And it, it – it, it remains as modern today as it was when he first wrote it. It's just unbelievable. Right. So. It's still counterintuitive for, for a it's lot still, of folks. Because still, yes. you think, like, why would you put a hazard exactly where you want to be? You know, right. isn't, isn't that unfair? Isn't that absurd? But um, what, what Lowe's saying is that, yeah, put those hazards where good players balls might gather because then if the hazard's there you have to play close to it in order to have right. a good position right 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 it, it, the whole calculus is plays out beautifully I, i'm going to put a really nasty hazard close to where your ideal shot and you want to you want to you want to negotiate that you want to play as close to that hazard as you possibly can now if you don't pull that shot off you know it's, your shot is not quite good enough then there's no reason in the world that well, the consequences of that miss can't be catastrophic. Because you took on the risk. You could have bailed out another part of the fairway. It doesn't give you as nice a shot into the green, but you had you picked it. You chose you chose to take on that risk. And you can and 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 the price for not pulling it off can be drastic. So that the the very carefully balanced moral scales of the old Victorian golf courses, he blew apart. Well, they were irrelevant. They, 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 in fact, they made for bad golf courses. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, and it's and it's truly the key to making golf courses uh, challenging for the good player as well as playable and fun for the less expert player, which is something every golf architect claims to do. But Bingo. really, that, that, this, that's is, this is what he was doing. <laughs> he that, found he found the solution to it. Yeah, bingo. That's the architectural squaring the circle. Yeah. And Lowe was the first to figure out how you do that. Now, he didn't. What's really curious is he didn't. He, he redesigned the, uh, a, a couple courses in the south of France. He had some design work at the Po course in the southwest of France. Um, but he really didn't go in. He didn't really go into golf course design. He, he really spent most of his time on the rules committee and writing. And he played in a lot of very, he was a superb amateur player, reached the finals of the amateur one year, lost to Harold Hilton, that sort of thing. Um, but he never really practiced as a golf architect, nor, nor did Stuart Payton, his friend at Woking. Right. Now, around this same time, the golf world is dealing with the introduction of the Haskell ball. 
Right. Which went enormously farther than previous right. models of golf balls and right. created an existential crisis for golf and golf courses. Basically right. either outlaw this ball or change the playing fields. And it turned out that the golf world decided to change the playing fields. And further, it turned out that this led to a lot of great architecture. Right. But Lowe was right at the center of the debate about the Haskell ball and about and the debate about how golf courses should transform in order to accommodate it. Um, so what what was his role in that discussion? There is there, there is a temptation to think that Lowe came up with his architectural theories as a response to the Haskell. I don't think that works chronologically. He he came up with his notions of strategic golf architecture before the Haskell appeared in Britain, before anybody seen it, really about almost a year before it appeared. We can argue that. I you know I, it seems to me that, but he was he was stridently opposed to the Haskell from the get go. In fact. He was he was made an object of fun and cartoons for years. He was so adamant about it. Um, and what his fear was, and this takes us to the current issues with the solid core ball. What really concerned him about it was that it represented a an early technology whose further development was unpredictable. The wound core ball was brand new, unlike anything that anybody had seen before. And while it clearly in 1902, 1903, it went farther than the gutty, what really bothered him was how much farther it might go in the future, because nobody knew. And the, 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 tech, the technology had, been, had not been developed, and there was no reason to think it wouldn't be developed. Um, and that's what freaked him out. And at, at bottom... What he was trying to do in both the context of the rules and the context of golf architecture and ultimately in the context of the Haskell is to protect the traditional Scottish game. And if balls could be, if balls were going all of a sudden 60 yards farther than they used to, golf courses didn't work anymore. The hazards didn't work. That, that's, that ought to ring a bell in 2019. Um, but that was the critical issue is that, golf courses couldn't possibly keep up with the technological developments of the ball. And he beat that drum as hard as he could until he became chairman of the rules committee in 1913. By then everybody was very upset about the huge array of different golf balls out there. It was just a blizzard of golf balls. No rules applied at all. He becomes chairman of the rules committee in 1913. World War I intervenes when they come back his first, the first thing he does is begin the process of drafting limitations on the ball, which are finally enacted in 1921. Uh, and then he sort of retires as chairman, but continues to serve in the committee after that. But it was a huge issue for Lowe. Uh, it cost him no doubt a lot of emotional capital. People made fun of him, laughed at him, but he, 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 was, he, he saw it as a profound threat to the game. And I think he was right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'm going to ask bluntly. Have Lowe's nightmares come true? Well, it, 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 the story is probably more complicated than that in the sense. Well, yeah, I think in, in, in many respects in 2019, they have come true. 
we have ineffectual, what appear to be ineffectual regulation of golf balls. Um, something needs to be done because they are outstripping the ability of golf architects to match up with them. And there's no reason to think that's going to change in the, in, 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 in the future. Maybe it will. Maybe the, maybe the technology will plateau. I don't know. But there's no reason. I get no assurances that it will. Um, and there's every indication it will continue to ramp up. They'll find various ways to increase distance. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's absolutely. And in fact, I'm shocked. There's been so little written about what I call the Haskell, the post-Haskell interregnum, that period between the appearance of the Haskell and the first limitations on balls in 1921. There's been remarkably little written about what happened during those two decades. Um, but it was, it was this wild, crazy, wild west of golf balls that just anything went. And it did go. I mean, there was this different cores, different covering, size, shape. Some floated, some didn't. They used liquid centers, metal centers, all sorts of stuff. Um, and uh, it was crazy. And it got so crazy that by 1912, 1913, the delegates to the amateur said, look, we got, we got to find, we, we can't have all these players coming in here and playing the amateur with wildly different golf balls. They're playing different games. So let's adopt a standard golf ball. And that began the process. It took 10 more years, essentially, to enact rules that limited the golf balls. Right. Now here we are today, and it, and it seems like in some respects the Wild West has, has returned, though there is some, some standardization of the technology. Um, we have come a long way in golf ball technology since 1921. We, we really have, and, 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 and the parallels to me with 2019 or, you know, our current period strike me just that they're just so obvious they jump off the table. Um, but some of the other debates that Lowe was in the middle of are still relevant too. I mean, the, 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 the penal versus strategic golf architecture issues still appear in how the U.S. Open sets up the U.S. Open venues. Um, you know, should we narrow the fairways, get the rough up, knee high um, or should we let the golf course try to handle these folks um uh you know rule it still comes up in rules issues today there's this and low would be spinning in his grave today's there, there, there's this great desire to have make rules fair in the sense that we're going to interject into the rules intent so did he mean to do something improper or did he just do it? <laughs> there are two prongs to the proof. He both did it and he meant to do it. Lowe would have said, no, he did it. That's it. You know, it's, it, that's it. And it's easier to administer, you know, did he do it or did he? It's not whether he meant to do it. So, you know, did he mean to address the ball? Well, he either addressed the ball or he didn't. You know, that's sort of if the ball moves, that's sort of So, I find all sorts of places where the battles low fought more than a hundred years ago haven't gone away. In fact, I, I want to make the argument, this is a little bold, I guess, that there, were, that there have been since 1895 or so two basic poles, two visions of how golf ought to be at its best. One is Lowe's conservative view, and one is the party of equity view, which is the party of equity view being, and I think these 
camp still largely describe different views about golf, that golf ought to be an objective athletic test. And the more objective the test, the better. And that means straight, you know, fair rules for everybody, all sorts of things. Or the conservative rule, which is that, you know, none of that is really relevant to what makes golf great. It's, it's more of a, uh, a, a, a test of intelligence, perseverance, courage, all sorts of things, uh, ability to analyze a golf course, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, so th- a lot of that carries forward. And that gets at something I'm curious about putting a finer point on. As we navigate the current debates about golf, which are so similar to the debates that have happened through history, in that often they take the form of these two opposing camps that you're describing. Right. How can John Lowe teach us a way forward there? Can he teach us a way to navigate these waters? Lowe was although he didn't ever really put it this way, but Lowe was really part of a, of a long-running theme in golf, golf history, which runs back to Arnold Holtain, which tracks up through various people in the 50s and 60s and is picked up again brilliantly by John Updike. And that theme is that golf is about testing yourself. It's about character. It's about it's 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 as much characterological and intangible in that way uh, as it is a competitive athletic sport. And if you miss out on that first part, you really are missing what's 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 most intriguing about golf. It's a maddening, sometimes unfair, sometimes very fair, uh, but fascinating sport. Um, and if you're in it just for the athletic achievement, you miss all that. Now, the athletic achievement is certainly well rewarded these days, but it is it is not something that Lowe thought was important to the game to make sure that athletic, the, the athleticism of the game is fair, transparent, and the tests are objective. That would he would have found all that anathema to what he thought was really the best about golf. Um, and a true test of character comes through adventure and challenge and challenge. things happening that are unexpected and perhaps unfair. And the test is whether you can deal with that and persevere. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that golf in the 1800s was so much more like mountaineering than it is now. And it seems like there is this, there is this trust or this, um, uh, this desire that we have in the present day to find equipment that will allow us to put that in the past, to subvert or to uh, do an end run around the test of character, um, to kind of get ourselves to the top of the mountain using implements. But of course, that's the that's uh, to the side of what the, what the real appeal of the game is, which is that it's you against the golf course and, and you're going to try to try to overcome it using what you have inside you. Um, it, it seems like, are, are we losing that? And have we, have we 
been losing that for a long time? You, well, I think we have. And, and I think you say, well, what was at the heart of his argument against the Haskell, which is that it makes the game easier. And, it, and that shouldn't be a goal. What, what golf legislatures should aim for is, is a game that is challenging, that presents to you temptations that create great anxiety about whether to take them on or not, um, uh, where failure to pull things off can be somehow a disaster. And that adds to the thrill and drama of standing on a tee, trying to decide where to hit your ball. Um, yes. I mean, it, 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 and the Haskell to the extent is much longer than the older balls and rendered so many courses obsolete, took those choices out of, out of, out of play. I mean, they, they, they just didn't matter as much and ditto for today. I mean, the, the, the ball has the same effect. Lowe made similar argument. It was a sort of a disaster in a lot of ways, but the, he was involved with the banning of the Schenectady putter, which I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but it dates back to 1908, and it was a f- disaster. I mean, they, the Americans liked it. You, the RNA didn't. The, center, the whole idea of a center-shafted club, Lowe found to make the game too easy, although it turned out it really didn't. And that there was almost a split between the RNA and the USGA, and it was a big mess, which in part account, accounts for why they were so careful when they rolled out the first ball rules to bring in the USGA and do that together. But uh, but he was but, but the same issues applied. I you know the idea of making the game easier is a misnomer, and we need to avoid that temptation because it's deeply tempting, and it makes. Related to that is the notion that we shouldn't have as a main goal as a golf legislator making the game more popular. And that's, I think, an inevitable part of opposing better and better balls and, you know, keeping balls, you know, not at the technological max, but somewhere before you get there. Um, that Because the Haskell was enormously popular. And one of the reasons the RNA Rules Committee didn't act on it because they were afraid to create a schism in the game. And they probably, those fears might have been well-placed. Lowe thought, though, the threat was significant enough to risk it. So, Same thing today. People are Same afraid thing. of blowing apart the game or ruining its popularity. But as you say, the, the popularity, you can't have the goal of making something popular. Everybody knows this. <laughs> if you try to be popular, you're, you're never going to be. It's putting the cart before the horse. There's got my, to be my, my, a yeah. compelling experience and then it'll become popular. Yeah. My, my guess, and this is just one guy's guess is that there's, if you took the latest and greatest balls out of people's hands and did a rollback and I, based on what I, we can discuss some other time, it would be enormously unpopular initially. Um, I think though over time it would have really no effect on the game. It, people would can come back to it. Um, I've never understood, for example, the opposition of ball manufacturers to a rollback because people would use just as many balls as they ever did. Now, their their fear might be that fewer people would play golf with a shorter ball. And maybe for a while, I think people would still come back to the game after after a period of adjustment. And golf courses, you know, part of the, Something I wanted to talk to you about is that I think part of all of this, too, and this is modern times, is this hickory move, hickory shaft movement, and people playing with old persimmon clubs, persimmon drivers, and, 
and the old uh, Wilson staff irons is they want to get back to a game that matches up better with these older golf courses. And it's just much more fun to play. Right. I, there is that discovery and, and it gets made fun of a little bit, right? It, it sure. <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, I think it seems sort of like an affectation to people, but, and, and I, I've never gotten hickories myself. I, I haven't tried it. I, I may not even really, I think I've rolled myself back through my, my lack of ability. Um, but I sometimes think about getting an older model of driver, you know, maybe a late nineties driver with a smaller head and, and seeing what the game is like with that. But, uh, but it seems so much about, about leveling the playing field a little bit between the golfer and the course, um, reintroducing that sense of, uh, the golf course as a piece of nature that is imposing and intimidating and difficult and unyielding. Um, and you're, you're given the barest implements to, to conquer it. And so that if you do conquer it, there's a wonderful sense of achievement. Um, I, I don't know if the, the current model of driver especially provides that same thrill of achievement because, you know, for many people, even for a player like me, just slightly above average, hitting that kind of driver is pretty easy. Right. There's yeah. not much misery involved in, in going playing a round of golf with a driver like that. Sometimes the ball goes in the fairway every single time. Um, and uh, and so when you when you have a, when you hit a good shot or when you go through a really good round, um, there's not the same thrill. And so it seems like people are trying to get that back. I don't think they're trying to be pretentious. I think they're just trying to find a different way of experiencing the land. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I would add that that, and I've played some. I don't own any, but I've played some, with some hickories. Is that you end up playing different kinds of shots too, which a, a, a much wider variety of shots. You don't hit the usual driver, lofted iron into the green, ball lands and checks, and that's it. You you, you play stuff on the ground because you're farther back, and you know all sorts of. It's just a whole there's a whole different variety of shots that you have to think about playing. Right. So, well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Bob. That was fascinating. Um, I'm very much looking forward to your book, as I'm sure many people are, uh, um, about John Lowe. Could you give us a sense? I know you're in the midst of writing it. I know what it's like to be in the middle of a project and have somebody ask you about the end point. It, it can <laughs> that can feel not very good. But but where are you in the process, and and what can we look forward to uh, in the future from you? I was worried you were going to ask me that question. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe a year, maybe slightly less. I mean, the, the the basics are in place. I just need to bring them all together. I, I'm going back over some older things today before I before we talked, and I, they they could use some work. But yes, okay, great. Basic. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, looking forward to that book, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Enjoyed it enormously. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.